Welcome to the Teaching in Medicine podcast, where we explore effective approaches in medical education. I am your host, Dr. Kathleen Timmy. This is a new type of episode that I'm going to call Journal Club. I will summarize an interesting article and then discuss it with a guest. Today, we are going to discuss an article on the role of medical students during the COVID-19 pandemic. As some of you know, I co-direct a Students as Teachers pathway at the University of Utah School of Medicine, and we currently have a group of first-year and second-year students, and I've seen how stressful this time is for them. The first-years who are just getting the hang of medical school now have to get used to a new educational format. The second-years are dealing with the stress of preparation for step one and the uncertainty of their upcoming clerkships. It's an overwhelming time for all of them, as if being a medical student wasn't enough. So I went to the literature, looking for medical student perspectives during this time, and came across an interesting opinion article on potential clinical roles for medical students during the pandemic. I think one of the main issues facing medical schools and training programs are what roles medical students should play in the clinical setting as non-essential personnel, but individuals who very much need to learn clinical medicine. So the article I came across is from the Annals of Internal Medicine, and it was in their April 2020 online publication. The authors are David Miller, Leah Pearson, and Samuel Dornberg from the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. The title is The Role of Medical Students During the COVID-19 Pandemic. I'm going to summarize the article here and then interview Ryan Carlisle, a second-year medical student from my institution. So this article provides a nice, concise background on the spectrum of medical student experience during this time. On the one hand, you have some institutions forbidding any patient interaction, whereas other institutions around the world have allowed medical students to enter the physician workforce early. They also cite concerns about consumption of PPE by students, the teaching burden on frontline physicians, and that students may act as vectors for disease transmission. They then go on to propose a few potential clinical roles for medical students during this pandemic. I really appreciate these examples. I think they're tangible takeaways about what roles students can play in the clinical setting. So the first opportunity that they outlined was having students assist with outpatient care and really doing skills that they've been practicing all along during medical school. So taking histories, uh, performing physical exams, calling patients back with lab results, providing some education on COVID to patients, taking questions. These are skills that they've really been honing over the last few years and should be able to do insights that are you know, fairly lower risk for exposure to ill patients. Another opportunity would be placing students in inpatient non-COVID units if there is appropriate PPE and staffing. So there's an argument that students are at risk doing other non-clinical activities such as PPE drives and childcare for physicians. So why not allow students to enter the clinical space, but perhaps on units that do not have active COVID patients that they know of? Another potential role for medical students could be helping to monitor COVID patients that have more mild symptoms, perhaps by phone, uh, to just increase the student's safety. Now that you have some background on this article, let's discuss this further with second-year medical student Ryan Carlisle. So welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Thank you for being here today. Yeah, no problem. 
So I wanted to start just by learning a little bit more about you. So why don't you tell us where you're from, where you went to college, and what brought you out here for medical school? Yeah, definitely. So um, again, my name is Ryan. Uh, I am. I just finished my second year of medical school here at the University of Utah. Um, I'm from here originally. I was born and raised, went to high school here, graduated from University of Utah for undergrad, and then started medical school here pretty soon after that. This was always kind of my, you know, it was my homeschool. It was my dream to go here. I had some um, friends that were a little bit older than me that were in medical school here um, that I really looked up to. And so I'm super happy it worked out the way that it did. Um, I've had a great experience so far. That's great. And what do you like to do when you're not in school? Um, I love sports. I love to uh, play soccer. Um, obviously, it's been a little hard with the quarantine. So I've um, been learning to play tennis. Um, uh, yeah, other than that, I like to read, write, uh, go running every once in a while. Your typical uh, med student hobbies. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right. So we know each other through the student as teacher pathway. And that's a longitudinal experience for medical students who are interested in building a teaching skill set during medical school. It's a four-year program. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about why you decided to sign up for that. Yeah, definitely. So I, um, at, the, at the current moment, um, I would really love to pursue a career in academic medicine um, in some capacity. I haven't quite decided how I want to how I want to kind of shape my future around that. Um, but I thought that this pathway would be a really good um, opportunity for me to kind of explore that. You know, what does it mean to be an academic physician? What are some of the uh, core skills that you need to have to be a good teacher and mentor uh, and a good learner? And, you know, how do you, how do you give good feedback and, you know, do a real, you know, good educational talk, things like that. I think this pathway has done a great job of kind of uh, making those things pretty simple and easy to understand, easy to apply to, you know, kind of our everyday and hopefully will be useful in the future too. It's been really neat seeing how you've progressed over the last two years. So we are definitely glad to have you as part of that program. I wanted to yeah, talk yeah. about the sort of elephant in the room, the big thing that's going on right now and affecting everyone's education from medical students to residents and even how faculty are you know, interacting with their patients and, and taking care of the day to day. So this is the end of your second year, which is a really exciting transition time. How has the pandemic affected you as a second year medical student? Yeah, it's, it has been, it has been an interesting transition. So so basically, I'll just kind of go back to the beginning um, when this all kind of started happening, you know, schools started shutting down, um, everything kind of transitioned online for the end of second year. Now, uh, we didn't have too much time left in like our in-class curriculum before our, you know, dedicated time to study for uh, the USMLE step one. Um, so it wasn't, I would say the impact was relatively low on our class in particular. Um, but we did get to kind of experience um, a few weeks of like really focused online uh, learning, which was a change from what I think a lot of people were used to. Uh, but in some ways that kind of has been a good transition into this, you know, dedicated um, study time, because I think the way that a lot of people are studying for the board exams, you know, is built around the same idea of online, you know, quick, concise learning through, you know, various resources. So um, it's, it's had its ups and downs. Overall, I'd say it's been a good experience, at least for me, 
Um, I hope that, you know, my classmates would reflect that too. Um, but definitely, definitely different and definitely a transition to uh, something that I at least was not immediately used to. And how has this affected your step one prep and your plans for taking the test? So it hasn't had um, too much effect on my actual study um, for this, the boards, just because, like I was saying, it doesn't, uh, you know, our mode of, of studying for the boards tends to be pretty online friendly. However, uh, because of the, kind of how the virus is affecting um, the community and because we have to take these tests at these Prometric testing centers, there has been a little bit of drama in the last couple of days. Um, Prometric has um, been canceling uh, people's, about half of everybody's tests at random you know, to comply with the social distancing rules. And so that's, that's been a little bit um, panic inducing <laughs> for us to say in the least. So that, that's been interesting and it'll be interesting to see kind of what they do to um, solve that problem. If medical schools are gonna end up uh, proctoring this exam themselves or if uh, you know, the USMLE will come up with a solution. Yeah, that sounds so overwhelming. I remember, you know, having that date and then making my whole study plan backwards from that date and figuring out how much time I needed for each topic. And I could imagine it's really tough to have that date be a, a bit of a moving target. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's definitely what we've uh, been dealing with right now. So do you have a set date or is that in jeopardy? You know, my original set date got canceled. So I have been um, trying to, you know, scramble to figure out uh, what to do. I, I got a new date that was a little bit later in June. So I'm hoping that I can either make everything work around that or, you know, find a date um, last minute that's a little closer to the one I had originally. I've definitely had to adapt um, a bit, though, the last couple of days. Wow. Well, fingers crossed that you're able to keep the date and everything goes smoothly. Yeah. So I wanted to talk to you about your ideas and your plans for your clerkships. Have you heard anything about how those might be impacted by COVID? Yeah, so uh, it sounds to me, um, you know, just based on attending, you know, the town halls that our school has been um, putting on every every week or two, um, that the curriculum committee voted to shorten all of our clerkships by about two weeks each, uh, which is pretty different than it was before. So we know kind of going into third year that our, um, our clinical experience is going to be a little bit shorter than it has been for uh, medical students in past years. How that will affect us, um, I'm not entirely sure. So that's kind of remains up in the air. The other thing that um, that, that means for us is because the schedule is changing so much, we all are going to have to go through the lottery system again to decide, you know, when our clerkships are actually going to be. So at, at the current moment, none of us actually have our set schedule. So it's difficult to kind of know where we're going to be, how to prepare for a specific rotation. And how are you dealing with that uncertainty? It's easy being distracted by step one. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think it will, it will definitely be, something to try and grapple with uh, once once we're past this this hurdle but you know I have I'm pretty confident that it'll all kind of work out exactly how it should be um, we'll still get some pick hopefully and what we want the order of our rotations to be and I'm hoping that um, hoping that I can get my preferences there and yeah we'll see how it goes but you know ultimately I think we're all in new territory here and we're all in the same boat so 
hopefully things smooth out a little bit more as it comes time for your clerkships. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. So I wanted to talk about this article now. Um, we previously summarized some of the findings in this article called The Role of Medical Students During the COVID-19 Pandemic uh, from a group out of Pennsylvania, the University of Pennsylvania. And reading the article, was there anything that stood out to you as particularly interesting? You know, they talk a little bit about kind of like some of the various, like they give specific details about what medical students could do to help um, with the pandemic um, specifically. And some of these I had never heard before. So just to give kind of an example, you know, that in the second part of this article, they talk about, you know, medical students boosting efficiency of lightly staffed clinics by taking histories, calling patients um, with lab test results, doing all the patient education and um, visit documentation for kind of those visits that were not related to COVID that were kind of um, deemed non-essential. A lot of them even got canceled, I think, um, when this all kind of started. And so I had never really thought about that. I had always thought about, you know, when people talk about medical students and their involvement um, in the pandemic, that to me was always like, how do we get medical students to help, you know, treat these COVID patients? But these guys were kind of talking about maybe helping, you know, some of the attending physicians maybe that where their time is more valuable treating the COVID patients, you know, with kind of the other responsibilities that they, um, they have day to day. And that, that was pretty interesting to me that they gave specific details. Yeah, I thought it was interesting um, that, you know, they really make you think about all of the other patients that are out there and who still need medical care. And is there a role for medical students to perhaps take care of this patient population that might be a little bit safer for you to interact with? So I thought I, I agree with, you know, what you said, there's definitely some opportunities there. Right, yeah. In the beginning of the article, they sort of set up that there were two different viewpoints. So one viewpoint is that medical students should be entirely removed from clerkships and from any clinical experiences. That's kind of one end of the spectrum. And then the other end of the spectrum would be medical students graduating early, you know, going to the front lines and really entering that physician workforce. What are your thoughts on in terms of that spectrum? You know, I think it was interesting to read about that. And certainly, you know, in the medical community, we've, we've all heard about kind of the stories of people getting graduated early and going to work on the front lines. Um, I do think a lot of that is kind of situation specific, though, as well. I think probably you could see either side of this argued, you know, but I think the argument probably gets stronger or weaker depending on where you are, you know? So if you're in a place like New York, right, that is um, really getting hit hard by this virus, I think it, you could really make an argument that, you know, we need every, we need all hands on deck, not just the attendings, not just, you know, people, physicians coming out of retirement, but also medical students that have, you know, at least um, an appropriate degree of training to, to help with this. However, you know, in some place uh, like Utah, where, you know, the virus has not been affecting uh, the population in the same way as, you know, has uh, like some of the coastal cities, New York, um, Los Angeles. Um, I think that you could make an argument that it might just be better to keep medical students out of the clinics, period, just for this, mostly for the safety of patients, but also, you know, just for the safety of uh, medical students as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so I can, I can see, you know, both sides of the coin here. I, I think this article highlights um, some really interesting, I love that it gives these specific details, right? Because if like, let's say you're in a health system that has 
has need for some of these other like non-essential functions or like really could use medical students and their attendings, you know, have time to do all this, the supervision. I think there's some, some stuff in here where like we could potentially be really useful um, and still kind of stay out of harm's way. And, you know, we could maximize patient safety. We could maximize medical student safety while still kind of helping out. But, you know, I, I could see how in some situations that just wouldn't be appropriate, how, you know, maybe the, the deans of these medical schools would want to make their first priority to just <clears throat> reduce the traffic into patient rooms and keep medical students safe at the same time. And, you know, maybe the only way to do that really is just to pull everyone off rotations. So. Yeah, I agree. It has interesting. to be situation specific and I'm sure it will evolve over time for each individual institution as well. So, yeah. What do you, do you have any thoughts about? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, two sides of those coins. I agree with what you're saying. I think in, you know, certain regions of the world where, you know, healthcare system is really exhausted and there's providers who are becoming ill and there's really a shortage of healthcare workers could healthy young medical students who are close to graduation, you know, enter the workforce in a meaningful way? I think so. I think, you know, being in medicine is a bit of a calling. And if you're, you know, months away from residency, there, I think there's not too much of a gap there that it would be unsafe for people to graduate and start a bit early. But I think, you know, in terms of areas where there isn't that sort of shortage. You really have to weigh risk to the medical student's health if that's necessary, um, PPE availability. There's just so many different factors. And I think you also have to consider that these are future physicians and if their clinical education is you know, impacted in any way and, and they end up graduating less prepared than physicians typically are at the end of medical school, that also has an impact. Although it, you know, might not see the effects of that until later on. But if we are graduating students in two years who had a really truncated clinical education, I think we don't quite know what the impact of that will be. Very complex, yeah. Thinking about your clerkships, are there activities that you think you feel pretty prepared at this point to do? And are there others that you really wouldn't feel comfortable doing at this point if you think about you know, history taking and, and physical exam skills and, and what you can contribute to a team. What do you feel at this point that you're comfortable doing? Yeah, so those examples that you gave there, uh, taking histories, um, giving a presentation to a medical team, uh, also some of those things that, you know, they mentioned in this article, you know, following up with patients um, about uh, discharge, <clears throat> uh, laboratory test results, things like that. I would feel comfortable doing really any of that. Mm -hmm. um, I feel really well prepared. Uh, granted, you know, our we don't have any formal clinical experience going into third year clerkships at this point. But what we have been taught, I feel like, has been has been taught very well. Another thing from the article, they talked about, you know, any involvement of medical students in a clinical setting should be voluntary at this point. Do you agree with that? Um, I do. I do. Um, obviously, that's a little bit that's situational too, you know, um, if we really need all hands on deck, that might kind of change my opinion a little bit, but I think that, I think it makes sense to keep things voluntary at this point, just, just for everybody's safety. You know, if some people really want to get involved and they, um, and they feel confident in their ability to do so, and they, you know, feel like they are comfortable maybe taking a risk, um, I think it makes sense, as long as it makes sense, you know, for the provider, for the, the supervising um, provider and the medical team, and also as long as we're, you know, considering patient safety first and foremost, I think we should let anybody in that wants to do that. 
kind of work. But I think that making it voluntary, sorry, making it mandatory rather than voluntary wouldn't make a whole lot of sense at this point, unless, you know, that that was um, we were in more dire straits. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do agree with that. I think, you know, although we typically think of students as a young, healthy, less vulnerable population, everybody comes with their own, you know, medical conditions and also exposure within their household. So, you know, there's medical students who have young infants at home. There's people who live with elderly family members. And I think it's, it should really be an individualized uh, decision and that if there's students who feel like they are capable and, and ready to help, then great. But I think we also have to be respectful of, you know, individual circumstances. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So a lot of the guidelines are coming from the AAMC. They put out a statement in April um, called the Guidance on Medical Students Participation in Direct Patient Contact Activities. They sort of divide it up into two different sections. Um, the first section is pertaining more to, you know, areas where COVID is still active. And, um, and then the second section is more um, what happens, you know, once cases are decreasing and it might become a little bit safer to re-enter clerkship settings. So section two talks about when there's not significant active, current, or anticipated COVID-19 community spread, and when PPE and COVID testing are widely available. I hope that we reach that point at some time this summer and you know, can reintroduce medical students into the clerkships in a meaningful way. But at the end of that section, um, there was kind of an interesting part that I just wanted to read to you and we can think about together. So they said that given the magnitude of the COVID-19 pandemic's disruption to all aspects of life, including medical education, changes to the order of clinical experiences, a shortened duration of direct patient contact weeks, the expansion of alternative non-direct patient contact clinical activities, and altered progression through the required clinical curriculum likely will occur for many students. So for students who have been anticipating, you know, this set clerkship schedule, you know, doing the field they're anticipated to go into at a certain point when they're a little more seasoned, things could really be shaken up. Do you have any concerns about that, about how your overall year might look? Yeah, they really could be shaken up. I, I don't have a whole lot of concerns about it right now. Basically sounds to me like there might be some alternative. So our clinic experiences might be shorter and there might be like some alternative methods of communicating with patients, like, you know, communicating with them via telemedicine. I think that these things are all like already kind of growing in popularity in the field of medicine. And so I, I almost wonder if this won't be even better for us learners, right? To get kind of experience doing this stuff through multiple mediums, you know? So obviously you would hope that uh, you got a lot of training in, you know, inpatient contact, the stuff you typically think of medical students doing on a clerkship, like taking a history, talking to patients, talking to families. I, I hope that um, that would still be kind of the core um, activity that you're taking part in on these clerkships. But I think, you know, if um, the rotations are a little bit shorter, that might cause you, you know, to be a little bit more focused during the time that you're there. If maybe some alternative methods of communication are necessary that might give you an experience to kind of learn what, you know, telemedicine is all about. Um, I think that it will be challenging and it may not be, you know, quite as cut and dry as um, it has been in past years, but, you know, maybe we could be the beneficiary of some kind of interesting modes of learning too. So 
Yeah, I appreciate your your resilience and your optimism. I think that's a very mature way to to look at what's going on now. And I agree. I think we're going to learn a lot from what medicine is like in this in this situation. You know, for example, in our clinics, a lot of my clinics have been converted to telehealth and that's been a really nice option for our patients who live in different rural pockets of the state and, you know, drive several hours to get to clinic. To be able to just have a quick follow-up with them by video is actually a really nice option for the families. And I could see us taking advantage of that more moving forward now that we're comfortable with the modality. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of good will come of it ultimately. Is there anything else that you can anticipate? Maybe we could brainstorm together and think about some other potential good that could come out of this situation, especially when it comes to learning. Yeah, obviously, you know, the, the practice with remote um, communication uh, methods would be very cool. I, I read this article in the New York Times um, recently. It doesn't really pertain to medicine, so to speak, but it was called, Is the Coronavirus Shaping the Future of How We Work? And it mm-hmm. kind of talks about how basically everybody's, you know, job in this economy has changed somewhat um, because of this. Either people have been laid off or their job title has changed, uh, their responsibilities have changed. And this article kind of poses this idea of like, are are we ever going to go back to how it was um, before this pandemic, right? And some of the things that I thought were really interesting were like, they use California as kind of an example of, they have this terrible air pollution problem. And um, a lot of that is kind of contributed uh, by people having to commute to work. So, you know, such long distances and in such heavy traffic. And this article kind of wonders, like, um, our company is going to see that having people work from home uh, virtually is actually just as effective as having people, you know, in in the, the store lobby, et cetera. And are, you know, is this ultimately going to, like, maybe open up some jobs for people um, that didn't exist before and, you know, make it so that not everybody has to commute? Um, I wonder if some of the same principles wouldn't be, you know, the same for medicine? Like, is everybody going to have to um, come into clinic as often? Are we going to be able to communicate, you know, with medical teams virtually just, you know, as easy and effectively as if you, you know, were to drive, you know, into the city to talk in person? Obviously, I think, you know, there are some some modes of communication that will be hard to replace. Um, obviously, you know, so if somebody's hospitalized and the patient, or sorry, if somebody is hospitalized and needs, you know, attention, that's, you know, a situation where you'd want to, you know, make sure that you're there for them, like by, you know, by the bedside with the medical team so you can, you know, attend to their needs. So it might not be as applicable to medicine as maybe something like computer science, but it would be interesting to see, you know, whether we need to staff hospitals with as many people as we do now currently, or some of those people, you know, could work from home indefinitely. Yeah. I mean, we, before all of this happened, we were expected to be in the office every day, even when we didn't have clinic. And I think we're demonstrating that you can still be productive in other environments. So for some people, you know, working from home makes the most sense and they're still able to complete clinic notes and call back patients and do a lot of meaningful clinical activity with that time. So I wonder if there will be a shift after all of this and allowing us to work in, you know, a variety of different environments. I think for educators too, it's forced a lot of us to become a bit more tech savvy. It's Mm -hmm. forced us to figure out Zoom, to figure out how to create videos to substitute our teaching. For us with our, our diabetes education for kids who are newly diagnosed, a lot of it was in person. And we'd have these large classes with 
families who were recently diagnosed around the same time. And we've been able to take those classes, convert them to voiceover PowerPoints, do video demonstrations of things that we used to do in person. And it's actually been a, a really nice option that we can now have on our website that families can reference back to, that they can pause, write down questions, take notes. So I think it's forced people to really think about, you know, the traditional ways that we've been doing teaching and if we can possibly do that any differently or any better. Have you know a question for you? Have you noticed um, that your patients have been responding to that positively? I think so. Um, I don't interface as much with um, the families, you know, right after they leave the hospital and review these videos, but I'm curious to see, and, you know, maybe we'll even come up with a survey for families who have received education in this way, um, just to see if, if it's making the same impact. I think you definitely lose, you know, in classroom, you can pause, you can, you know, ask, have the opportunity to ask questions, have them answered in real time, you know, explain things, draw things out that you can't really do just by sending someone a video. Um, what we've done to replace that, though, is having a nurse or an educator call the family after they view the video. So they still get that chance to uh, ask questions. But that would be a really interesting study, actually, to see, you know, what kind of knowledge is retained, what's the preferred modality of teaching uh, for families. Got me thinking of some ideas here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'd be really interested to know that too. If you look at how popular some of these, like uh, like YouTube, for instance, has become, mm -hmm. um, clearly there's a need or, or some, you know, level of desire for education in the form of like a video that you can pause, right? And um, I would be super interested to know, you know, how patients are, how patients feel about it. If you know, it really is more important to have that, you know, human connection while they're getting this information, or if that is just as effective, you know. And, uh, that would be be interesting to know. Yeah, and thinking about activities for medical students during this time, like what if, let's picture a clerkship that's, you know, used to be six weeks is now three or four weeks. In those other weeks, could you have students work together in teams and maybe create educational material for patients and families or, you know, something that'll that'll be meaningful and longer lasting? I think there's a lot of interesting projects that could be done in this, you know, new non-clinical time. Oh, yeah, certainly. Most certainly. Glad you brought that up. I may um, try to seek out some opportunities like that. There you go. There's a new, uh, new research project for you. Yeah. I just wanted to bring up one more um, article from the New York Times before we wrap up. So this um, article is called Medical Students Sidelined for Now Find New Ways to Fight Coronavirus. And I thought it was interesting how, you know, earlier on when medical students were really, you know, banned from doing clerkships and clinical activities, the ways that medical students have come together to be there for each other and to be there for the community. And so in this article, they talk about, you know, PPE, mask drives, um, different community outreach programs, and even a program called COVID Sitters, where students have helped really babysit for, you know, physicians and essential workforce members. And I just think it's interesting that uh, medical students have really answered the need uh, to help in a lot of different ways. I was wondering if you've noticed anything locally, like even within your class or within our institution of people kind of helping out in different ways. Yeah, so I would say that um, just from what I've noticed is that our, our medical school, so, you know, all four classes, um, they have all really kind of answered the call and put together a lot of the same programs that this article 
references. So just some examples. We had a really successful uh, PPE drive these last three weeks or so. Um, we even got a shout out from uh, the University of Utah Health Sciences um, CEO uh, for the, the work we were we were doing. Um, wow. It's taken a ton of uh, time and effort and, and a lot of medical students to run this thing. But um, it seems that, you know, the end result is like a, it was a very successful in collecting PPE that people had, you know, just stored over the years. And I hope that that has made a, a difference um, for our hospital system. Also, I know that there were um, calls for people to help out with those COVID, those COVID call centers, um, like uh, doing the screening, that, that was a big thing. So you could, you know, as a medical student volunteer to be the person that answers the phone and, you know, asks follow-up questions, decides, you know, who needs to actually be seen in the emergency room right now. When this all started, that was a big deal is, you know, everybody coming to the emergency room and, you know, maybe not all of them had COVID and maybe some of them would have been better isolated at home rather than coming to the emergency room. And then, yeah, the, the childcare for providers, um, that's been all over um, like our class Facebook pages. We want to, you know, to sign up to help those docs that are, you know, giving their time to, to help fight COVID. They all have children usually, and those, you know, a lot of them were affected by school closures. So that's, that's a great thing that I know a lot of people have been involved in here. And then also it talks um, in this article, showed a picture of um, some people helping the local food bank in mm -hmm. Washington. Um, and we've had a whole group of uh, medical students here that have done the same for the Utah food bank. They've, you know, gone out, um, they'll put like collection bins in front of their houses and, um, you know, post these things on social media. And then it seems like it's been really successful in crowdsourcing extra food uh, for the food bank. And I'm just so proud to be <laughs> a part of this, um, part of this, this school and uh, this, this like really, really great group of people. I think medicine is a calling, you know, as you kind of uh, alluded to earlier. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's really cool to see people step up, you know, when they really don't have to or need to, but they just, they choose to do it anyway. That's really awesome. It's, you know, for such a difficult time, I think there are moments that are heartwarming and I'm certainly proud to be part of this community. So we are going to wrap this up. Are there any other things that you wanted to discuss today or points from the article that you thought were interesting or did we hit most of those? I think we hit most of them. Yeah. Okay. Well, that sounds good. I wish you the best of luck as you get ready for step one. You know, I hope you're able to relax and focus and that things go smoothly when it comes to the test date and just wishing you, you know, really good things in your clerkship years and continued success in your educational endeavors. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is a lot of fun um, to be on here and yeah, fingers crossed. Okay. Take care, Ryan. <laughs> take care. Thanks for listening to the Teaching in Medicine podcast. This has been a Journal Club episode with guest Ryan Carlisle. Don't forget to like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Teaching in Med. Send any questions or ideas to teachinginmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your hard work and please stay healthy out there.